0: Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. Well, friends, today we continue our three-week journey through our final book in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy. We chose to break this up. We said we were gonna do it in three weeks, even though we could probably have spent months on it. Last week, we took a look at the first section, which is Moses' opening speech to the people. Together, we read the Shema, which is a a central prayer in the Jewish faith and and a central part of, of Moses' rhetoric. He reminds them, and to get into the promised land, they're going to have to do better than the previous generation. They're going to have to find a way to integrate their spirituality into everything they do. And most of all, they've got to talk to their kids about it. They can't wait for other people to do it. They have to vocalize their love of God in front of their kids so that the promised land can remain in the family for more than one generation. Next week... We've been at this for a couple couple years now. Next week, we're gonna say goodbye to Moses. We will hear his final blessing on this community. It'll we'll sit on a mountain top looking out at the promised land and we'll move on in the story of the people of God. This week, this week we get the, the meat and potatoes of the book, more laws. All right, so and that's actually where Deuteronomy gets its name from. It, it, the Greek name is Deuteronomion, which means second law or repeated law. As Moses takes many of the laws that we, they went through in previous books and he, he summarizes them. He goes through them again. And since Moses was totally comfortable recycling sermons, I thought I could get away with it this morning too. And so turn with, I'm just kidding. Moses does, though. He repeats and summarizes some of the, the laws, some of the ones that we looked at, some of the ones we didn't have time to. But he also does some revisionary work, which is, which is kind of interesting in itself. Right? So, some might have you believe that like every word in the Bible, it, it's never changing, and it's always in alignment with everything else. And yet, we, we find Moses already revising some of the laws that he himself instituted not all that long ago. And it, it, it continues the conversation about progressive revelation, right? That, that, that God, and that, that we are always invited into the process of becoming, right? Learning more about ourselves, the world around us, and the God that is everywhere. So what we have today are some several chapters. Oh, we're not going to read all of them, don't worry, of, of laws and guidelines. And the truth is, they're, they're pretty practical, right? So in Deuteronomy, if you wanted to know what you can and cannot eat, right, or, or how large of an offering you should be bringing to the priests and the church, chapter 14. It's easy. If you want to know how to settle legal disputes or how to handle capital punishment, chapter 17's got you covered property laws, rules for warfare, how to deal with foreign wives and rebellious children. And for the crime junkies out there, there's even a section on how to handle unsolved homicides. Chapter 19, 20, 21, it's all there. So today we're gonna to look at one of these repeated and slightly revised laws that you can find already stated in Leviticus 25. We're going to talk about the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee. And I'll tell you, this might be one of the most radical things that the early Israelite community did to to make sure that everyone, everyone, everyone was living a healthy and flourishing life. So here now a reading from Deuteronomy 15. Every seventh year, you must cancel all debts. This is how the cancellation of debt is to be handled. Creditors will forgive the loans of their fellow Israelites. They won't demand repayment from their neighbors or their relatives because the year, the Lord's year of debt cancellation, has been announced. You're allowed to demand payment from foreigners, but whatever is owed to you from fellow Israelites, you must forgive. Of course, there won't be any poor persons among you because the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, but only if you carefully obey the Lord your God's voice by carefully doing every bit of this commandment that I'm giving you right now. Once the Lord your God has blessed you exactly as he said he would, you'll end up lending to many different people, but you won't need to borrow a thing You will dominate many different people, but they won't dominate you. Now, if there are some poor persons among you, say one of your fellow Israelites in one of the cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor fellow Israelites. To the contrary, open your hand wide to them. You must generously lend them whatever they need. But watch yourself. Make sure no wicked thought crosses your mind, such as the seventh year is coming, all the year of debt cancellation, so that you resent the poor fellow Israelites and don't give them anything. If you do that, they will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. No, give generously generously to needy persons. Don't resent giving giving to them because it is this very thing that will lead to the Lord your God blessing you in all you do and at work. Poor persons will never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you, and to the poor who live with you in your land." And if any of your fellow Hebrews, male or female, sell themselves into your service, they can work for you for six years, but in the seventh year, you must set them free from your service. Furthermore, when you set them free from your service, you must not let them go empty-handed. Instead, provide them fully from your flock, food and wine. You must give to them from that which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember how each of you was a slave in Egypt and how the Lord your God saved you. That's why I'm commanding you to do this right now. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Interesting passage, yeah? What we have here is a rhythm, a regular interval of complete debt forgiveness throughout the entire community as well as the regular releasing of, of bond, bounded servants, right? hired hands who are not free to leave when they want to. The passage in Leviticus 25 that starts this, it extends it even further and says that, that any land that you may have bought from a different family every 50 years, you've got to give it back. You've even got to get the land back to its original owners, to the people that God originally and gave it to so that generational wealth doesn't get out of control. So sit with that for a second. Every seven years, the complete and utter canceling of debt. Try playing that out in your mind today for a second. If you're like me and still paying off student loans, you might really like this passage others of you, not so much. Could it work? Would that actually help the poor? could it just make credit more expensive and more exclusive? Chew on it. Like we did two weeks ago, how about a show of hands? A gut reaction. Thumbs up. This would be a fun experiment that might actually level the playing field and redistribute wealth. Thumbs down. This is some pipe dream communist nonsense, right? That would just destroy the global economy. Where are we at? A little mostly banker, right? Got gotcha, you, Ted. So here's the thing, what I, what I don't think is helpful would be to draw out a long conversation of whether regularized forgiveness of all debt would be a practical or effective way of fighting poverty. I'm not a politician or an economist. If we're honest, probably smart enough to even carry that conversation through. But what we can do um, is have a soul conversation. We can learn something about the heart of God through this rhythm of forgiveness. Right, we could tackle some really straightforward parallels like predatory lending, right? That, that essentially hopes people will will default on their loans, right? We could talk about slavery, which some might think is over, but organizations like International Justice Mission, they still estimate that there are over 40 million people stuck in slavery today. What do you really say? These realities are atrocious. They're in direct opposition to the Christian faith, the love of God, and love of neighbor. But on some level, I don't think you need Captain Obvious over here to to point out that that is not in alignment with the heart of God. So let's have a more nuanced conversation about this rhythm of debt forgiveness and what it might tell us about God. As we said, a soul conversation and as always then we encourage each other to go out with with courage and to respond to our souls so to begin i think we can consider what debt looks like today and then what it looks like what it looked like back then uh, cuz there's going to be a difference this year household debt in the us rose to over 14 trillion dollars that's a really big number right the vast majority of this debt is mortgage, auto loans, and student loans. All right, simply put, today debt is, is wanting or needing something today that we don't have the money for. And with the rising cost of tuition and housing it seems practically impossible to, to just avoid altogether. In ancient Mesopotamia, on the other hand, one would begin selling off their livestock, their property, even their children and themselves, when tragedy struck, right? They weren't going into debt to get a a corner lot with a view of the Jordan River. They indebted themselves to other members of the community to to stay afloat, to weather a storm, to keep food on the table. We're going to do a little time warp back. Maybe you remember the scene in Egypt. Joseph just became in charge of all the storehouses and filled them with all the grain in the land, and a famine hit, and it hit hard. It's a reading from Genesis 47. There was no food in the land because the famine was so severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan dried up from the famine. Joseph collected all the silver to be found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which people came to buy, and he deposited the silver in the pharaoh's treasury. Now the silver from the land had, uh, had been spent. And all of the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "'Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes just because the silver's gone?' Joseph said, "'Well, give me your livestock, and I'll give you food for your livestock if the silver's gone.'" So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food for their horses, flocks, cattle, and donkeys. He got them through that year with food in exchange for all of their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the next year and said, We can't hide from my master that the silver is spent and that we've given all the livestock to my master. All that's left for my master is our corpses and our farmlands. Why should we die before your eyes? We and our farmlands too, just buy us. Buy us and our farms for food, and we and our farms will be under Pharaoh's control. Give us seeds so that we can stay alive and not die, and so our farmlands won't go unproductive. So Joseph bought all of Egypt's farmlands for the Pharaoh because every Egyptian sold his field when the family worsened. So the land became Pharaoh's, and he moved all the people into cities from one end of Egypt to the other. That's the economy of Egypt. That's the economy of Pharaoh, the economy of empire. It's the system that the Israelites had modeled for them, and it's the system that enslaved them all those years ago. And Moses is saying, God took you out of Egypt, and now God wants to make sure that there's no Egypt left in you, right? Some of you might have picked up sneaky financial tricks while in Egypt. Some of you might have become really good at finding loopholes, but that's not how the promised land is going to operate. And the entire time through that famine, there was enough grain for everyone to eat, The question was, will everyone have access to the basic provisions? And if someone ends up going into debt because of a tragedy in their life or or a natural disaster in their region, the question is, how many generations should pay for that? We talked about household debt in the US. Try this one on for size. Total household wealth in the US has jumped to $137 trillion. Again, it's so big, it might as well be, right? It's a random number. But $127 trillion. Now, there are 116 million households in the country. Anyone super quick with math? All those zeros? (laughs) There's enough enough wealth in the country for every household to have $1.2 million worth of assets. And yet a recent... Study, right, recent data from this year's survey, or census, tells us that there's still 48 million people living under the poverty line in the U.S. What I'm not saying is that a total redistribution of wealth is practical. Good for industry, right, going to fuel the type of scientific advancements that we all need and have become accustomed to, right, the solution presented in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15 might not be practical or relevant. But the problems that they are trying to to resolve, they are trying to soften, are as relevant today as ever. Right? We also have storehouses full of wealth while people are begging for scraps. We have millions of people stuck in underpaid and undervalued jobs that that don't even cover basic needs. We have piles of debt that some manage just fine, while others feel crippled under. And we have forest fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, a global health pandemic that has left the vulnerable feeling even more vulnerable. Aristotle said, poverty is the parent of revolution. As we know, widespread poverty, it places a communal weight on all of society, right? It's not good for anyone. It's not good for the soul. And without a pressure release valve letting off some of the financial inequalities, history would have us believe that we're sitting on a ticking time bomb. Something's got to give. And maybe there's some divine wisdom in in riding the ship in regular intervals instead of waiting for her to blow. And so maybe Sabbath year, maybe the year of Jubilee, the year of canceling all debt, was not so much a solution to a problem as much as an ordering of society to keep the problem from becoming rampant. It seems to offer divine recognition that over time, People and families, they're, they're just simply going to end up with different amounts of wealth and resources. Stuff happens. It's natural. And instead of trying to pretend that, that disparities aren't naturally going to occur, God's simply calling the community to create regularized softening of these inevitable inequities. Right? Which begs the obvious question well, what are we supposed to do about it? And what if. Be nice, right, to have a a program that just helped us feel a part of the solution. I just show up at the church every other Tuesday and together we'll fight injustice. Well, it's not a bad idea. I I do believe that the root of poverty is deeper. I believe it's a, a soul issue. And so the hard work that each one of us, especially in our position, is called into it's an inward journey, an honest look at our life's priorities. If you have way more than the people around you than the residents at Lazarus house and the people who drop off the Amazon boxes at your house, my house, it doesn't make you a bad person, but it does reflect a system that's starting to fall out of sync with the way God would have ordered the world, right? If the reality of widespread poverty is stirring a sense of holy discontent in our belly, and yet we continue sipping cocktails at a country club, jet-setting any chance we get, or whatever the thing may be, I've got to be honest, another program or another book study might actually make things worse. It might actually mask the real soul work that we're being called into by giving us an artificial sense of already being a part of the solution when really we have so much we need to figure out. What we learn from the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee is that the promised land, the good life as God intends it is filled with enough milk and honey for everyone. Naturally, some are gonna be more efficient at accumulating milk and honey, at harvesting than big grapes. But for it to remain a land of promise, we simply can't let it get out of control. Jubilee might not be calling for the complete upheaval of the global economy, but each one of us, as individuals, are called to the radical reordering Of our priorities. There's a place for education, there's a place for programs and exposure, but ultimately there is a need for soul-searching and a need for courage to follow our souls and to the unknown realities of, of God's economy. We might not leave with a concrete next step this morning, but we do leave today encountering the heart of a God who welcomes and provides for everyone. Why we share the many provisions in our life, not because we have to, not out of guilt, but out of joy, the joy that's inevitable, the blessings that are inevitable as we slowly align our heart, our soul, our stuff with the heart of God. Amen.